In the last year, we've seen some incredible breakthroughs in medical science. The current pandemic led to the fastest vaccine ever produced, the COVID-19 vaccine. But vaccine development happened quicker than any of us could have imagined, which led many to question its safety. My name is Alexandra Perry. I'm a science journalist based in Tucson, Arizona. Welcome back to Unvaccinated, a mini-series where we will begin to explore and investigate how institutions, like education and healthcare, produce vaccine mistrust in American society. This mistrust intensified online misinformation. It's a problem that needs to be understood if we hope to reach herd immunity, or normalcy. In this episode, we're going to analyze how psychology plays a role in the spread of misinformation, and how understanding psychology can help us communicate health information in better ways. We're also going to learn some ways to fact-check online content with free resources. You don't need a degree to verify information. To talk about the psychology of manipulation, we're going to chat with Dr. John Cook, a cognitive scientist and communications researcher. So I research climate change misinformation. I'm based at the Monash Climate Change Communication Research Hub at Monash University in Australia. We're also going to talk to Danielle Acosta-Ramos, an investigative researcher at First Draft News, a nonprofit organization that works to combat misinformation. And I focus mainly on Latinx communities and Spanish communities in the U.S., these two guests are going to give you a crash course on the newest techniques for not only investigating fake content online, but also ways to share your investigations with friends and family without sparking hostility. First, let's talk about cognitive science. Dr. Cook's area of expertise is in climate misinformation. Yeah, so I started out uh, in this issue of climate change and misinformation by running a website, Skeptical Science which was about debunking climate misinformation. And my background at that time was just physics. Like I understood the science of climate change, but I didn't understand the science of science communication. And one day a cognitive scientist, Stefan Nordowski, emailed me some research by psychology researchers into how to debunk misinformation, or, and, and more precisely, how not to debunk <laughs> misinformation. They, they found that if you debunk it the wrong way, there's a danger that it could backfire and you could actually end up reinforcing the myths that people believe. And how I was doing it was the wrong way. <laughs> so that was kind of an eye-opening moment and really made me realise that there's a whole science to science communication. I started reading about it, trying to, at first, just find out the best ways to debunk misinformation. And that took me down the road of eventually doing a PhD into um, researching myself, more effective ways of debunking misinformation. Because debunking and fact-checking essentially is about psychology. There are several layers to the question of why people are prone to believing misinformation, as mentioned in the first episode of this series. If you haven't listened to the first episode, misinformation is false or inaccurate information spread by someone who may not be aware of its deception. Disinformation is information intended to deceive, but when it comes to climate change misinformation... Being vulnerable to climate misinformation or, or the biggest predictor of denying climate change, the reality of climate change, is political affiliation. 
who you vote for has the biggest effect on what you think about the greenhouse effect compared to education or even science literacy levels. Um, and the second biggest predictor is political ideology. So, and that distinction is important. Political ideology is what we believe. Political affiliation is which tribe we belong to. And when you get down to it, fundamentally humans are social animals. We associate with our social identity with the tribe that we belong to. And, and that's a big predictor, of, well, the biggest predictor of, of climate attitudes. Uh, that's not baked into the cake. It's, it's, we're not necessarily hardwired to be climate deniers if we belong to a certain political tribe. That doesn't happen all across the world. It's, it's strongest in the US. Dr. Cook recognized this behavior at the beginning of the pandemic. And it wasn't baked in the cake that COVID had to become polarized either. It, and there was this kind of shining moment for like a few days early in the pan pandemic when I had these hopes that maybe it wouldn't become polarized. But then when um, President Trump started sending all these cues about mask wearing and casting doubt on experts and downplaying the, the virus, that had a quite toxic polarizing effect on public opinion. Broadcasting this information to a country with weak science education, which we discussed in the first episode, creates confusion about who should be trusted. And if you're already predisposed to questioning institutions, your online activity will reflect that. Things like your search history inform algorithms to predict what you will most likely read, watch, or listen to. Technology capitalizes on dividing lines and constructs an online environment specific to your interests. We consume information tailored to support our own opinions. There are a couple of different ways that social media platforms make the issue of misinformation worse. Firstly, it's easier for any individual to reach millions of people without the gatekeepers of mainstream media. And secondly, the algorithms themselves uh, sort information into um, different um, different piles depending on what your your pre like existing beliefs are. So, if you're already um, predisposed towards being skeptical about climate change or COVID nineteen, Facebook's algorithms or, or the other all the different um, social media platforms they can work that out and deliver information that you are more likely to click on because their financial model depends on clicks, likes, shares, interaction. Um, so their algorithms are designed to maximize their profits. And unfortunately, that means delivering information that um, fits in with your existing beliefs. The algorithmic aspect of this problem needs to be solved by social media platforms. But until that happens, there are a few methods researchers created to communicate science and facts in stickier ways. Yeah, so there's really two ways to correct misinformation. Um, Pre-bunking, which is preemptively correcting the misinformation before people encounter it, and debunking, which is trying to undo the damage afterwards, uh, correcting the misinformation after people have seen it. And uh, in a sense, it's we don't have control of how the world 
you know, what's happening in the world and whether people are seeing this information or not. So in a way, it's kind of an academic distinction because I can send out a correction into the world and someone may have seen this information and therefore it's a debunk. Well, they may not have and it's a pre-bunk, you know. So it's uh, so what we've done with our research is we've tested what happens when you have people encountering the misinformation and the correction in different orders. Uh, so we've done like a pre-bunk and then the misinformation or we've done the same correction, but as a debunk happening after the misinformation. And we found some interesting results. Uh, one thing we found was if you do a fact-based correction, which was explaining the facts as a way of showing how the misinformation is wrong, the order matters. If, if it's a debunk and the fact-based correction is the last thing that people see, it works. It works well and it, it debunks the misinformation. But if, they, if you explain the facts first and then the misinformation is the last thing that people see, the misinformation cancels out the facts. And so that's a really important dynamic to recognize from a science communication and an education point of view. Misinformation can cancel out facts. But we also tested what happens when people see a logic-based correction before or after the misinformation. So explaining the rhetorical technique in the misinformation. And in that case, we found that it worked equally well in debunking the misinformation, regardless of whether it came before or after. Logic-based corrections is another method of communicating why a certain piece of information is false. So uh, typically fact-checking is fact-based. Um, it's about explaining the facts. And if people understand the facts well enough, then they will understand how misinformation is wrong. Uh, but an alternative approach, which researchers call logic-based corrections, is explaining the logical fallacies and the rhetorical techniques. And the power of that is it actually can help people see misleading techniques across all different topics. Initially, uh, I started by um, summarizing the five techniques of science denial with an easy to remember acronym, FLICK, F-L-I-C-C, fake experts, logical fallacies, impossible expectations, cherry-picking, and conspiracy theories. You can also point out where you got your information. That's actually a third type of correction, um, source-based inoculation. So there really are, and we've covered the whole gamut now, fact-based, logic-based, and source-based. Source-based is it's basically discrediting the source of the misinformation. Um, you know, for example, explaining, well, this person works for the fossil fuel industry. So they have a vested interest in misinforming you. Um, whereas logic-based doesn't really look at their motives. It's more, what is the rhetorical technique that they're using to mislead you? Now, if I'm being honest here, I'm not going to be able to recognize all of the rhetorical techniques used to mislead me. So I'll need to do some research. Luckily, if you don't have time to do your own research, Dr. Cook developed an easy way for you to recognize misleading rhetoric. Uh, and so now what I'm working on is a game, a critical thinking game that teaches people these techniques, but through gameplay and um, making it fun and engaging as a way of uh, incentivizing people to keep playing the game and gradually become more and more familiar with all these different denial techniques. It's called Cranky Uncle. It's, it's freely available on 
Android and iPhone and on browsers. And you can access all of those versions at crankyuncle.com. There's a lot going on under the hood when you are trying to correct misperceptions and misinformation. What I found was a powerful way to neutralize misinformation was explaining the techniques used to mislead people. Recognizing the ways in which agents of disinformation attempt to spread falsehoods gives you an internal warning signal for fake content. Once you know the signs, you can spot them and investigate them. Let's ask investigator Daniel Romas with First Draft about ways you can investigate online content. First Draft is a nonprofit organization that focus on combating misinformation and empowering communities to find misinformation. And we work alongside uh, civil society organizations, newsrooms, universities, and other researchers. Ramos does most of his investigations online, but make no mistake, online work saves real world lives. Uh, as, I, as I told you, I am Latino and a recent immigrant to the United States and Parisians, a, a huge task that I do happily to try to combat this information because I know there are community members that actually get affected by these issues. And um, I think it's just really important, especially during this year, uh, in which the biggest story is, of course, coronavirus and how has coronavirus um, affected the Hispanic community here in the US. One of the things that we always mention is that misinformation has real life impact. Those um, messages that you see on Facebook or in WhatsApp or in Telegram might seem inoffensive, might just seem like little big pieces of information, but the truth is um, that members of community, um, family, parts of my family had real life consequences from misinformation. We see, for instance, a lot of vaccine hesitancy in the community. And this is in part because of um, misinformation that we see. And that, of course, has real life consequences. You know, we know that vaccine saves lives and the coronavirus can be deadly. Um, we see in the numbers in which the Latino community is disproportionately affected by this disease. And that's what I'm, what, what I say has real um, life consequences. We're talking about health, we're talking about family relationships and other factors that, uh, you know, uh, have an impact in everyday life. I can personally relate to what Ramos means about family relationships. My family group chats haven't been the most hospitable places. It is important to remember that family or friends who are sharing this content aren't trying to be malicious. But this innocent behavior leads to real-world consequences if it goes unchecked. But there's also the, the little part of misinformation that is shared organically by regular people. Maybe your aunt that saw something suspicious in you know, a Facebook message and shared it because she cares about you and she's worried because she could have you know, a, an allergic reaction to the vaccine. And she shares that message that is absolutely fabricated and maybe some random guy in a basement, I don't know, in Idaho sent um, to cause some um, uh, you know, pain and, and fear, but your aunt catch that and send that to you and maybe send that to your cousins and to other family members. So we have the generally bad actors 
that do this for several reasons, but we also have part of the community that will share this because of a psychological component. Um, and that's why it makes uh, misinformation so effective. And that's why media literacy is so important for not only um, college students, uh, but for every single member of uh, the community in general. Now, if you received a piece of content from your family or friends online, take a moment to really look at that content and don't share it right away. Start by asking yourself, does this article or video have a byline, an author? Does the content have grammatical errors? If so, it probably hasn't been reviewed by an editor. More eyes are better than one. Does the headline read dramatically, lots of capitalization and exclamation points? Going a little deeper, look at the profile of the original sharer, if you're on social media. Do they have a personal photo in the profile image? Does their account name have tons of random numbers? You can identify bots working for disinformation agents this way. But other times, these agents can be very sneaky. So we need to outsmart the tech wizards with our own investigative skills. I presented a video to Ramos that was shared in one of my family group chats. The video depicts a woman named Sean Shelton having a seizure. In the video, Shelton claims these seizures started after receiving the COVID-19 vaccine. The username and profile image of the YouTube account seemed off, so I asked Ramos to share his process for fact-checking a video like this. Okay, the first uh, step of the process is, especially if you get this from a family member or somebody you actually care, is not to be confrontational with them. It's just give it a little time and go ahead with your investigation and you know try to be as delicate as possible because the your ultimate goal is not just to prove the video is fake, but to explain them why so they won't share it again. You know, and, and they will shut you off immediately and just send it to other family members. So if you we're dealing with family or friends, uh, that, that will be my number one thing, right? But getting onto the uh, video, Twitter is a magical place with sadly misinformation um, just thrives, right? So at doing a simple search with several keywords of the things that we see, woman, seizure, vaccine, uh, and we can do a Boolean. Uh, so you, you just have to use every single word and place an or um, to get all the results together uh, in the Twitter search. We will see that it's not the only video there is. We can actually see the original date and we could actually see people debunking that video. So most of the times when we're not, maybe we're a little bit late on the game, the first thing we have to do is search for keywords related to that video, and we will find that probably has been debunked already. So we don't have to go through the full, full process, right? But I will say that was my first recommendation. Twitter is a powerful search tool, and you can um, also uh, filter. Let's say if you want to just get videos, you can do, go ahead and do the search and tap on video, and all the search results will um, trim down to show you only videos. Um, that's on Twitter, but we can also use a little reverse image search. Uh, there is a tool that is fantastic that is called Rabbi. 
Um, with that uh, tool, you can do a, a, a reverse image search in different engines. And that is really useful to try to get the first time that image was used on the internet. And even though it's a video, you can actually grab a screen grab of the video and try to locate it that way. So that will be the first time it comes to mind when a friend or a family member share a suspicious video with me. There's no catch here. All of the resources mentioned by Romas are free to you. I'll include links to these resources in the show notes. Ramos finished by saying, I think my advice will be uh, be kind, especially with your family members and your friends, because this misinformation environment that we are basically stuck in, it's a long-term problem. And everybody has to uh, you know, try to help a little bit. Uh, media literacy for college students is great, but it's even greater when they took that media literacy they get in college and share it with family members and friends back home. Go to our website, firstdraftnews.org, and there's a bunch of different resources there uh, for community members, for journalists, for researchers that are free to get and really useful. First Draft has a COVID-19 vaccine hub, which is updated daily with the latest vaccine information for multiple countries. And the Kaiser Family Foundation and the Black Coalition Against COVID recently created a YouTube series called The Conversation Between Us, About Us. These videos feature Black doctors, nurses, and researchers answering questions about the virus and the vaccines. Now that you have these resources, you can safeguard yourself and hopefully family members from vaccine myths and disinformation. And most importantly, I am not trying to persuade you to get vaccinated, but I am trying to tell you that sharing vaccine misinformation leads to real-life consequences. Think before you share. I hope this series has helped you get a better grasp on the social context for vaccine misinformation, how psychology plays a role in online manipulation, and why it's important to view online content with a critical eye. Institutions didn't prepare us for this problem, but we can create small change within our own social groups, on and offline. Slowing the spread of misinformation can save lives. Thank you to Dr. John Cook and investigator Danielle Acosta-Ramas for agreeing to be on the podcast. This podcast was created and produced by Alexandra Perry for The Daily Wildcat, UA's award-winning student newspaper, online all the time at dailywildcat.com. Music in this episode is provided by Ben Sound.